Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Thanks for joining us. This edition is sponsored by the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. For more information, head to MOTOETF.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. Hi, Alan. Hey, good morning, Fred. And we are very happy to have with us Dr. Stephen Polzin. Thanks for being here with us, Stephen. Uh, delighted to be here. Look forward to our discussion today. Well, most recently, you served as Senior Advisor in the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Research and Technology at the Department of Transportation. You had previously been Director of Mobility Policy Research at the Center for Urban Transportation Research at the University of South Florida. Let's start out with your thoughts about where we are today, Stephen, when it comes to automated vehicles and the progress there's been here in the midst of COVID-19. Okay, uh, good issue. Um, it's always fun, particularly as we're, we're after uh, TRB week where folks' thoughts on some of these issues get stirred and stimulated by various discussions, et cetera. Um, I've always approached uh, automated vehicles from the perspective of wanting to understand how they're gonna influence transportation policy, investment and planning. Um, my areas of interest include travel behavior and planning. Um, and automation is, is in effect a new mode or a new opportunity um, that was certainly anticipated to be hugely disruptive to our um, historic uh, perception of the travel choices and travel behaviors of the public. Um, as you know, uh, the, the pace or the thinking in terms of the, the time frame for uh, deployment and impacts have been shifting and moving. It's one of those things that's been kind of perpetually three to five years away for, for the, at least the last three to five years and, and who knows how long that'll play out. Um, so in some ways the world has relaxed a little bit um, and they've been distracted in this past year with COVID really sucking the energy out of the attention of uh, a lot of the folks that are involved in planning um, and thinking about the future and, and those kinds of things. And as we're at least hopefully nearing the end of the immediate impact of COVID, um, the issue of the role of automation um, and how it's been impacted by COVID and how it will uh, emerge as, as a, a continuing challenge and, and opportunity for mobility going forward um, is something that, that I'm keenly interested in. Um, and I'm frankly quite sympathetic to the planning community um, as they think about you know, doing long range planning and talking about the future, um, they're really in a tough spot right now. The, uh, the wind was knocked out of their sails with COVID-19, obviously an unanticipated um, event uh, that wasn't in any of the scenarios that folks do in their long range plans. Um, and uh, obviously um, automation is still uh, churning along and, and uh, uh, continues to show some promise and some potential. Um, perhaps with the impact of COVID, um, some more thinking about the role of automation, particularly on, on freight and first mile, last mile connections and delivery. Um, and uh, so it's a, a kind of an interesting time to think about um, where we're at and where we're headed with transportation um, as we both recover from COVID and anticipate um, continuing technology 
Um, certainly automated vehicles is part of that, but obviously driver assist uh, and more technology to enable things like uh, vehicle sharing, TNCs, et cetera, uh, micromobility. Um, all of those things are churning and frankly making it very, very difficult to plan the future uh, from a transportation perspective. Well, right. I mean, Alan always points out, and, and he will very shortly, uh, vehicles, there are two, two categories really here, vehicles that are safer because of the technology that still require us to be behind the wheel, paying attention, and, and essentially driving, and then there's the truly driverless. So and where, where, where are we today? I guess the focus still is on the driver assist, right? Well, I think in the near term, the, the driver assist is certainly uh, revealing itself. It's, it's much more uh, obviously integrated into new vehicles. Um, and folks, I think, are, are you know, being accustomed to it um, and starting to appreciate certain aspects of it. Um, it. It does raise the questions of to what extent can we capture at least the safety benefits um, through driver assist um, and to the extent that we can capture a significant share of the safety benefits, will that mitigate the willingness or ability to transition to fully driverless? In other words, if we're capturing a lot of the benefits while retaining the personal mobility and, and flexibility and freedom of vehicle ownership, will it deter us from moving to a more MOS style of, of uh, automated uh, service provided vehicles, at least for uh, huge shares of the public? And, and, and as I know Elaine is, uh, is interested in, um, as are lots of people in the mobility industry, including the US DOT, um, the opportunities to use the technologies to assist folks that aren't otherwise able to uh, make personal vehicles available to themselves um, is certainly an, an, an audience and in a market that's going to benefit from um, automation um, and, and certainly driverless is, is the ultimate there in terms of having uh, much greater freedom for mobility uh, for folks that otherwise are dependent upon somebody else. And um, so that market and that audience is still very interested. Um, the other consumers, like I say, I do think there's an issue about will enhanced safety be satisfactory to them um, or will they want full automation at some point? A couple, a couple of things in here, Steve. Uh, one is, I guess, it, it seems to me, and, and you know, there's been an evolution over the over the past you know, five, ten, whatever years. Uh, originally, um, I, I would suggest that um, the automobile industry had put um, was putting uh, warning systems in cars and really focusing on warning and, and, and in some sense, really afraid uh, to put in automated things that, that would basically um, um, uh, do things for you, uh, even though you may not ask for it. You know, it took a while for, for automated emergency, uh, uh, for analog brakes. And in my classes, I sort of, uh, tell the students that, that look, analog brakes are sort of a marvelous kind of thing. You know, it's a technology that's been put in there that basically uh, goes against what, what the individual wants at the time that, that it does it. it. It says, I know better than the individual. Because if, if I'm going down the road and I go to slam on my brakes, I, you know, I push that damn 
brake pedal to the floor, and 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 the brake pedal goes back and says, "Hey, Alan, hey, cool. You know, you don't know what the hell you're doing. I'm going to take over because you're really screwing this up." Of course, it doesn't say that; it just does it. And in fact, you know, with, in 2012, when it was mandated that you know the 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 uh, the uh, stability control in in cars, I mean. Again, to me, that's a sort of a marvelous automated system that again, you know, I'm going around, around the corner, I'm losing my rear end, I'm about to die. And the darn thing says, hey, Alan, you're stupid. I'm taking over, move over, get the hell out of here. I'm doing this for you. You know, it, it might've warned me or something like that, but darn it, it just does it. Which are, I guess, what I call beautiful, put that word on there, uh, uh, automated safety systems that in fact go against what I want, okay, at the instant of time, but after I get a chance to think about it, I'm there, ah, thank you, thank you, you know, I'm sweating bullets. You know, to me, that's, 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 what, that's where automated emergency braking systems, I think, are finally becoming, you know, that, that instead of just warning us that we're about to hit somebody in the rear end. They're finally taking over. Instead of just showing us a picture of what's behind us when we're backing up, it actually stops and doesn't run over the child that we don't see. You know, those are, those are actually doing things against our will in some sense at that point, point in time. And I think we need to do, the industry has started to move there and I think it needs to push more into that, that end of it. And, and, and what do you think about that, that whole concept? Because now it seems as if they're categorizing the automated emergency braking systems and certainly the intelligent cruise control pieces as basically comfort and convenience improvements as opposed to safety. But if they're gonna claim that they're comfort and convenience, they at least don't, can't make us less safe, okay? Yeah. I think we're seeing a, a couple things. I think that the market penetration um, is such that there's starting to be, you know, kind of customer appreciation and feedback. The blind spot warning, I think, is the, the classic one. There's an awful lot of people. That's a great warning system, I should yeah, say. Yeah. I, I hate warning systems. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but it should also go farther. It shouldn't even let us change lanes. Right. Or but, make but it harder for us. Okay. There's a lot of people that have gained confidence in the technology because it's not uncommon to find somebody that, you know, readily admits that that protected them from getting in a, you know, a severe, a, either an accident or, or a disruption. Yeah, and, and once you start having those events and that becomes common knowledge and experience, then customer acceptance and willingness to invest in and, and accommodate potentially um, these systems is certainly uh, certainly valid. I, I smiled when you mentioned the um, ABS systems. I grew up in northern Wisconsin and instinctively knew to pump my brakes on you know snowy roads in the winter and had yeah. to unlearn that behavior when automated braking systems came into being. Um, so I, I understood the physics of what was going on with automatic braking systems um, and appreciated them yeah. from the get-go, but that's a relatively rare uh, uh, perspective anymore. Um, and I do think that the you know, the customer acceptance is, is moving ahead because of that awareness and those anecdotal stories uh, and experiences. Um, 
there still is an awful lot of mystery to the technology for a lot of people um, that, that struggle to understand it um, and don't know exactly what it's doing. Um, I laughed, I tell the story occasionally. I uh, flew into Minnesota to give a lecture at the university. I got off the plane at midnight, got into a vehicle, uh, leaving the rental area uh, at midnight and it started beeping at me. Um, and, you know, I checked my seatbelt, I made sure the doors were closed, I looked all around, I couldn't figure out why it was beeping at me. Um, and it happened to be, as is usually the case with Reynolds new vehicles, um, and this had a speed warning and the ramps out of the parking area were five mile an hour and I must have been going eight or 10 or something. And, and, and this uh, vehicle I was driving kept telling me I, I you know, was breaking the rules. Um, but I was mystified. Um, and, and I see a lot of folks um, that aren't accustomed to the technology kind of get nervous about it and, and sometimes turn it off. Uh, and I do think the way that we uh, train and educate folks uh, about what the technology is and what it's doing and how to use it, um, and particularly those technologies where they're adaptable or can be turned on and off or set or adjusted by the individual, um, their sensitivities, et cetera. Um, we need to do a much better job of educating people uh, on how those systems work. Um, and not just first time owners, recognizing a car typically goes through multiple hands. Um, and while the, the original dealer on a new car purchase might do a good job of, of, of or at least offer to orient you, by the time it's in the used car lot a few times, nobody has a clue as to what's working or, or, or how it works. Um, and I do think we'll, as an industry, need to do a better job of educating people about what's in the vehicles um, so that they get comfortable, particularly as these start to you know, filter through the system and, and uh, become commonplace even in used vehicles. Is, is there a need? Wait, 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 oh, go ahead, Alan. Right, right. I want to disagree with Steve. <laughs> Discuss it a little bit. I, um, um, I guess, I guess, if you would have given, if I would have given you that question on, on an exam, I would have flunked you. No, no, <laughs> just joking around here. What I, what I try to tell my students is, damn it, I don't want to work for the technology. The technology should work for me. And therefore, I would ask the OEMs to do a hell of a lot better work and do a better job in the design and the implementation of these technologies, okay? It shouldn't just be because you're going three miles an hour of, over the speed limit. It should figure out, it should, it should, uh, it should be intelligent enough to be able to, to, to know that in fact, you're a new user of this thing. And to in fact be able to say to you, hey, uh, you know, you're going above three, you know, you're going above three miles an hour or whatever, and at least realize that you're in fact, uh, you know, this is the first time it's telling you this, or maybe just the second time, not the nth time, okay? And then said, you know, they they they've, they've short circuit, they've just begun to develop these systems. These systems, one, should know much more about the driver than they they do know not to invade privacy, just to deliver the, what then, in fact, they're, tr they're trying to deliver better. You know, uh, crossing a double line, okay? It shouldn't beep every time I cross a double line. 
it should certainly beep and do a hell of a lot if somebody else is coming the other way at me. But if there's nobody else coming the other way, should it really beep? Should it say something? Or should, or should you know, to what extent there is, it, we're just at the beginning of the development of these things. And we've done the first sort of trivial piece of their design, okay? But we really have, we haven't made them so one, they work. I mean, what's the matter with, with intelligent cruise control? The problem is, is that the, if the darn, if there's a stock object ahead of you, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't operate. Why? Because it's not sure that you can pass underneath it. And, and so because of that, you know, it just, whatever. Come on, these things, not sure they need to educate us. They can do a better job in the product. They do. One, <laughs> one example, and I don't think we're, we're have different perspectives at all in terms of the need of, of, <laughs> of, of educating the customer. Yeah. One, one example that, that I found intriguing lately, and I can't give the company credit because I don't recall which one it was, but one of the scooter rental companies um, has a mechanism where um, if you're the first time renter of their scooter, they govern the speed limit lower for the first two, two rides you take on the scooter for your safety. And I thought that was a clever example of, you know, they looked at the data, the huge share of accidents are in the first couple exposures. Um, and, and I was, you know, kudos to them for taking that initiative and doing that. No, absolutely. And I think more of that has to be, you can't just throw the problem over to, 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 to the car dealer to educate you. In fact, Look, they have so much bandwidth. They have so much capability in there. As the thing is happening, it should know that. It, it maybe should should uh, uh, play something on the radio, not play it on the screen, so you watch the screen instead of the road ahead. Uh, but the, but the, you know, remind you or whatever. I mean, come on, what, what's so tough? They can pick, right, get people to write that code. I mean, it's cheap. I think, I, I think the the real test of kind of customer acceptance of uh, potentially the intrusiveness of these systems will be uh, when they frankly take on the speeding issue. Um, obviously, they've got the capability to do that. Uh, currently, um, speeding has been a huge issue during COVID with um, both driving faster simply because there's less traffic on the road, but reckless speeding, uh, what I kind of uh, argue might be a cabin fever escapist kind of thing where you, you're so tired of being cooped up that you get in your car and tromp on the gas um, and drive recklessly. Um, and, and there hasn't been a willingness to, uh, to step up and, and impact the speed uh, with aggressive you know, warnings or caps. Um, similarly, um, you know, substance abuse continues to be well, a let's problem just, on let's the safety Let's deal front. with the speed issue, you know, since that is, that is a, I, I agree with you 100%. The, the problem is, is that the industry has sold vehicles for the last hundred years based on who I can go past. You know, no, as I no. like to say, my darn speedometer in my car says that I can do 160 miles an hour. You know, every time I look at it, I get, you know, whoa, I can go fast, you know? <laughs> I mean, you know, they know that. They, Madison Avenue figured that out a long time ago. The Mad Men did that. Walking away from that by them is going to, is of course, 
you know, holy hell, I mean, you know, that's tough. But but they've got to do it because man, that that's that's ugly, right? <laughs> so are you are you advocating then that the that the vehicle should not allow you to go above a certain speed? Well, I would think that there's a number of mechanisms you could do. You could limit the duration of that you can travel excessively fast. You can be more proactively in warning about it. Um, there's a number of things, and, and frankly, I don't know exactly what would be the uh, the most effective or the most realistic in terms of customer acceptance. Um, but speeding is is a huge issue. And frankly, it's one of those that could be a resistance factor for um, movement towards automated vehicles. If in fact automated vehicles are gonna operate at a speed limit um, and people on average drive well over the speed limit, which they do empirically, we know the average speed on a freeway is you know seven miles an hour over the speed limit um, or whatever. That's um, the average, what's the tail of that distribution? Well, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, are people willing to accept that um, given they've, you know, are going to be safer. They may save some time in those same vehicles as urban travel flows smooths out, et cetera. Incidents are reduced, but, um, but that's, a, that's a big lump to swallow for some folks that um, the idea that you're not going to be able to travel at, at, at the speed you want. Um, and I think to some extent will be a good test of public willingness to um, absorb and, and accept some of these technologies to see if they're willing to, uh, to have some oversight over their speed. Well, well, but uh, you know what I what I tend to say on that is that uh, that, that we need we really need you know two different standards you know one for people and one for computers, unfortunately because because people have a distribution associated with what the hell they're going to do and of course what one's trying to do with these with these. Uh, conditions, limits, rules, blah, 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 is to get people to behave and stay with it, you know, and, and basically get people to behave. Uh, whereas uh, with automated system, then you just write the code, okay? And it's gonna behave. It, 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 you know, the distribution is, is, is essentially a direct dollar function. It's tight, you know, not like humans, you gotta deal with, you know, the, the whole, the whole group is so that the whole group will behave proper. So, I mean, to me, that is such, so difficult. I mean, I, I just don't know how the hell we're going to do that. Uh, uh, well, I do think it's going to be a good test of public's attitudes. And, and in that sense, I'd love to see us start to experiment with that and see what we learn. Yeah, me too. I mean, you know, when I, like, I always like talking about United Airlines, when I get in United Airlines, get on flight, I want to run up and pound on the door and tell the pilot, go faster, go faster. <laughs> I want to go fast. You know, I don't, I don't know. There, I, the whole damn thing might be automated as far as I know. I don't know if there's anybody there. They've locked the door. I don't know what the hell they're doing in there. But, you know, it could be automated. But damn it, I, I, don't, I don't get to go fast or slow. Cool. Stephen, what are your thoughts about the, the potential for some of these newer safety technologies to be required to be put into vehicles? Or, or if not required, should the government be, and we've been talking about this lately too, offering incentives the way they're offering incentives for EVs? You, you know, I think they're the acceptance of the technologies in the new vehicles is really ramping up quite rapidly. 
Um, we're now seeing more and more of these technologies in entry-level vehicles. You know, early on, they were in the expensive option packages where you had to buy the luxury version, et cetera. Um, but that's not the case. And I do think, you know, safety has been a selling point for vehicles um, uh, for a long time. And I do think we're going to see the market penetration uh, of these technologies in a big way in the next uh, uh, several years. I, I do think there will be issues to make sure they transition as the vehicles age and are these systems going to continue to be maintainable and functional um, and are they going to influence the reliability or the, the, the economic life of the vehicle, um, et cetera. Are we going to just like, you know, you can get notice for a brake light burnt out or uh, something like that. Are we going to have any kind of mechanism to make sure that these systems are are working? And if they're not working, is, does the operator know they're not working? Some of those things, I think, will um, influence their penetration of the full fleet over time. Um, but I'm not worried about the, I, I do think they'll make it into the new vehicle fleet. Um, like I said, I think it's the transition period that, uh, that will be interesting to see how um, over the next decade or so, as those systems penetrate into the uh, secondary market, are they still functional and, and used, et cetera, uh, by uh, then drivers of those vehicles? Those, I think, will be some of the, the challenges and issues associated with it. I, I agree with you there, Steve. I, I mean, I'm really encouraged when into when to Subaru dealer and, and, and Volvo dealers uh, not too long ago, and, and the, the, the extent to which uh, you know, these, these systems are available throughout the, the, the line and, and the, the, the knowledge, and, and really in some sense, almost, almost an enthusiasm from the, from the sales side. You know, I just walked in you know, trying to be a person off the street with, with, with respect to it. So I, I do think they, they, they are getting into the, certainly the new car fleet people are buying them because they're being sold. Uh, um, whether, how, the extent to which they're really using them, um, they're, they're really not turn offable, uh, you know, and things like that. But the education and, and, and really the quality of these things really needs this. I think continue to substantially improve as, as we were discussing a few minutes ago. So I'm, I'm, I think that I really think they're getting there. And in some sense, if you look at, at you know, at Elon, unfortunately, Elon's gone a little bit too far, but you know, and it should pull back. But, but you know, in, in some sense, technology to me, technology and not just the electric motor is selling Teslas, you know, and 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 to talk about seven thousand dollar upticks for whatever he calls it, even though it's you know, it's not what he calls it, um, uh, and maybe it's just the halo effect i don't know but it's 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 um, it seemed to be on the positive side of the adoption scale and the you know the millennial generation is you know the jokes of the uh, the baby boomers were, you know, we worried about horsepower and uh, et cetera, and they worry about gigs and, and uh, computing speed and, and those kinds of things. And, um, and some of the bragging points are the technology in the vehicle, not what's under the hood. And um, so, yes, I do think there's acceptance of the younger generation of the technology and it's a cool factor. Um, and, and so again, like I say, I think it'll be accepted. It, it should be recognized though, that 
new cars are um, really a fairly narrow audience of, of the folks that are buying new cars. Um, it's, it's, that's a thin slice of the upper income uh, uh, audience that buys those and the rental car industry, I might add. I had 11% roughly of new cars before COVID. So um, uh, it's getting them in the hands of, of the secondary market that I think will be a, a, another test. Yeah, wouldn't it be amazing if you know under under in, in the trunk is an Nvidia like hell's <laughs> under the whatever Nvidia's in in the trunk? I mean that would be interesting if all of a sudden we see some ads uh, coming out of the car manufacturers saying you know you got your GPU back there. <laughs> yeah, well, and one of the companies had a, a charging station and a scooter that was packaged in the trunk of their vehicle for uh, to get from parking to your destination. So um, they'll, they'll try anything. So. I guess, yeah, no, I think that's a good comment. Yeah, they'll try anything. Uh, Stephen, to, to shift gears, if you, if you forgive that for, for a second, uh, companies, at least one company, Waymo, have had to make a decision as to when their automated vehicles are safe enough to pull safety attendants. What are your thoughts uh, about that? And when is safe enough? Um, that's a, a, a neat question. And one that I've given a little bit of thought to was particularly, frankly, as I looked over some of the safety data during the COVID period um, and saw the huge ramp up in fatalities during that period, it was very disconcerting. Um, and, and a lot of that is behaviorally related. Um, it's risk-taking young people that are driving more um, because they're less likely to, to, to forego activities. It's substance abuse, it's speeding, um, it, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, and so you think about it from that lens of, well, what's safe enough? And uh, is what that made me reflect on was, I don't do those risky behaviors in my own driving. Something like 40% of, of fatalities are associated with alcohol or substance abuse. And, um, you know, there's mechanical condition of vehicles and recklessness and driving in inclement in conditions and taking risks, et cetera. So if, if I, as a driver, don't do those things myself, my safety risk isn't isn't the industry average, it's some fraction of that. And while I could certainly be a victim of somebody else's carelessness, um, the reality is that my safety risk is far under uh, the average. So if I were personally looking at, uh, you know, what standard of safety do I want to have in that vehicle before I relinquish my right to drive uh, and, and rely on my own judgment for safety, um, it would have to be a darn lot better than the average. Um, I wouldn't be satisfied with uh, uh, a vehicle adver advertising that it did 10% better than the average on fatalities. I'd want it to do a lot better than the average in terms of accidents and fatalities. So I do think that that's a very high bar. Um, it, it just is. It's going to be a, a tough standard to meet. Um, and, and it really begs the, you know, the technology being you know, very refined before we go fully driverless. Um, and then of course the challenge will be, uh, we might be able to deliver that very high standard in certain physical environments, uh, but not others. Um, and, and are those vehicles then not gonna be 
you know, sufficiently reliable or robust for use in all kinds of situations or topographies or geographies or, or weather conditions, et cetera. And is that going to stymie their acceptance in a broader sense uh, where we would fully transition to, you know, reliance on uh, an automated vehicle? So I do think that that's going to take some time and some learning um, before we kind of assimilate uh, to understand where those touch points are. Um, it may suggest a deployment model where they're um, incidental and relied on by um, persons that don't have personal vehicles or are relied upon for you know, urban trips in certain environments where a household uh, uh, perhaps has fewer vehicles and, and uh, uses automated vehicles and services for some share of their trips, but not all of them. Um, I think that that's almost inevitable as a model for a number of years uh, at a minimum during a transition period. Um, but it's going to have to be a pretty high number, that safety number, um, before uh, folks will be willing to relinquish driving, particularly safe drivers. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, I, I agree with you. I, I, I sort of say we're all really good drivers unless we misbehave. Yeah. It's the misbehavior that leads to the chaos. It's the speeding, it's the tailgating, it's the drinking, it's the falling asleep, it's whatever. Those are all misbehaviors. And as long as we don't misbehave, we are really good. And therefore, the, the, probably the safety thing of this thing is going to be to be as good as we are when we're not misbehaving. Now, the good thing about the automated thing is that it really, if it's programmed right in its operational design domain, which is really important, um, then maybe one can achieve that level of safety to be not, because it won't misbehave, to be that good, but within that constraint set of whatever that happens to be, okay? And that allows us to get started. The thought that, that these things can sort of go anywhere is like goofy and go all the places that we go is next to goofy, but to be in some places that deliver some mobility value, which is to me the only reason to be driverless is to be able to get the folks who, who for whatever reason can or don't want to drive to at least be able to satisfy some of their um, quality of life mobility needs you know in those places maybe we can make these things so that they are as good as uh, as we drive in those areas at those times in those situations blah 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 as we are when we don't misbehave. I don't know, what, what do you think? You, you know, I think uh, an unfortunate aspect is the folks that probably most need the enhanced uh, uh, safety of driving are the, one, the last ones that'll be, you know, be in a position to benefit from it simply because of the, uh, the cost or price curve if, if it relates to buying the vehicles um, or even if it relates to paying for the service. Um, those folks that, that are inclined to, to have risky behaviors um, aren't as likely to be the first in line to take advantage of these uh, services. It, it does beg the, the scenarios though, for example, where um, as uh, enforcement discipline, sometimes people lose driver's licenses, et cetera. Um, 
where you could see uh, enforcement being somebody that has their second speeding violation that they're told that, you know, they need to rely on mobility services for <laughs> the next three months as part of their penalty um, or DUIs or other things where um, you're, you're no longer uh, allowed not to drive a car with certain features in it, for example. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll have technologies that can um, identify distracted driving and uh, impaired driving and, you know, shut down vehicles, uh, et cetera. Um, and so that we can, you know, put a dent in some of those problems. Um, so there may be some regulatory or, or other elements that um, help us move the curve on safety um, uh, in situations where, um, those markets might not otherwise be uh, uh, first in line for automated services or automated vehicles with technology. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the sort of the problem with the, with the vehicle that shuts down, the problem is the, the, mis the people that misbehave are just going to quit the wires or they're not going to buy those things. They're going to go back and buy a 55 Chevy or something like that that doesn't even have seatbelts and not even an airbag or whatever. I mean, it's it is real. It's a really tough situation. Uh, hopefully, we'll have driverless vehicles in a in a big enough operational design domain so that when they see that they they can use those things and basically get the same mobility as they had, they'll say, "No, oh, I don't even need to drive anymore. I'm I'm good." That thank you. I I know that existed. I'm, I'm wonderful. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that's that's kind of what I hope gets created. I guess. Yeah, it, it will be interesting to look at data as we as these systems, including the driver assist, um, penetrate the market. Will they have a discernible impact on overall uh, crash and safety statistics? And um, again, we're likely to see those adopted by the safest segment of the market already. Um, so it, it may not be as meaningful, at least in aggregate, as we hope. Um, because of that adoption curve situation. Um, but I'm sure folks with data will be looking at that and trying to understand how they uh, are influencing safety behaviors and safety performance. In terms of the, you know, the distribution of who's out there driving, I think last week we had uh, Diana Roth on with this. And, uh, and she pointed out very, very well that you know, the, the problem with the, the higher uh, deaths per VMT that was re really reported is, is probably due to uh, all the all the people that are nice, safe drivers were also, you know, adhering to the rules and the rules about uh, staying home. And therefore, yes. they didn't accumulate any vehicle miles traveled. The only vehicle miles traveled were basically by the misbehaviors. And they misbehave the way they've always misbehaved, maybe even a little bit more, as you pointed out. So that when you then look at the rates, there was nobody to, to bring the rates down, you know, the deaths. Right. right. Because we, we, we're the big guys. No, I mean, it, it, it's really, it's, it's an issue. And it's, hey, there, we want diversity. We want people. We don't want everybody to be the same. Absolutely, but uh, you know, um, 
Right. And, and young people are, are obviously less susceptible to serious consequence from COVID and, and, and hence more likely to be willing to take activity participation risks than seniors. So they're a larger share of the vehicles on the road and, and they have a higher you know, risk profile in driving just in general as it relates to age. So you know, all of those are part of it. But, but the data was pretty compelling. The substance abuse numbers were up dramatically. The non-seatbelt compliance was up dramatically. Um, it, it was really um, disheartening to see that. As you were saying, Alan, it's, yeah, it's who's, talk, who's doing the driving, right? If, if, if you also talk to police, police will tell you geez, the number of people that are driving over 90 miles an hour and so on. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'm noting uh, I was driving yesterday uh, down there down from Hayes Landing, and, and man, on 295, I guess at the end of the month, there must have been eight people pulled over, I guess, um, uh, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm glad they were out there because they really haven't been out there earlier this month. Um, it's, yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, and I think enforcement did lag. There was a kind of increase. Uh, obviously, they were um, diverted in many communities, um, but there was also increased sensitivity of the conflict point between uh, people and police and enforcement making enforcement more lax um and and i think there's a consequence to all of that we and need to also, have they weren't pulling over the marginal speeder because you know the, the potential covid interaction with that exactly all that. Yeah. I mean, you have to respect them for that sure uh, so they have plenty of really bad speeders <laughs> so uh you know yes all those things go in there fred well, I got to tap the brakes for a second. <laughs> we'll, oh, we'll, <laughs> great. <laughs> we'll, be, we'll be back with more. But first, this is a good time to remind you about our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. To get more info, please head to MOTOETF.com. On the website, look for a white paper called The Smart Transportation Revolution. It's under the Insights and News tab. You can find some great information there to help you make informed decisions about investing. You may know that ETFs uh, can be a smart way to spread risk and focus on a particular category of stocks. The site, once again, is MOTOETF.com. Alan, some headlines to touch on this week. Uh, first off, General Motors announcing it plans to phase out gasoline-powered cars and trucks, selling only zero-emission vehicles by 2035. Yay, but, huh? <laughs> uh, Fred, you're going to get me in trouble again. Uh, yeah, great. GM's going to put out the zero-emitting uh, uh, vehicles. Uh, but, of course, the question still has to begs the question that... Uh, that um, uh, the energy that's being used to create the electricity, to what extent is that marginal energy uh, zero emit emitting uh, in itself? And <laughs> you need the energy when you're somewhere down the road, that means you have to carry it with you. And the thing is so that you have it when you need it, uh, and the thing that you're using to carry it with you, uh, to what extent is is that uh, zero emitting, uh, to really have a zero emitting vehicle. So, um, I, you know, it's, it's not as simple as just having the vehicle not do it. You know, the vehicle is not, not doing it if it's sitting there, great, okay? If it starts to move, then you have to worry about what's, what it's using to move it. 
and where it's moving. And, um, and it's, it's, it's not a slam dunk. Okay, may very well be. We may very well be by 2035 have complete uh, electric generation from, uh, from, from zero emitting sources. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, whatever. I got to say, my vehicles for the last nine months have pretty much been zero emission. Yeah, I know because they exactly. <laughs> I know, I know, I, I know that. That's that, great. That, that's my point. It's great to have a vehicle, but the vehicle, if it's going to be used, used, useful, it's got to move. And so I think it's a little bit disingenuous of General Motors to go out there and and, and tout that. Um, I, th I think we have to be careful here, and and of course we want to get to that point. But we have to look at what gets us there and what gets us there, uh, you know, in a practical way, and so on and so forth. And and uh, and it, it, it may may not be just as easy as, as making the vehicle be zero emitting. So new new forms of uh, generation for for well, electricity, you, you obviously. It, you got it because right now the marginal energy is created by coal, because there's still coal being coal electricity being produced. So if all of a sudden I, I then make a new demand on electricity, what, are, what, what has to be fired up? Coal. Okay. Stephen, I think you wanted to jump in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, anytime somebody touts a 2035 goal, I don't take it too seriously, <laughs> um, simply because there's a lot of time between now and then to learn from market and technology yeah. and other things and see what actually happens. It, it certainly seems like a noble goal that, that will play well in this environment. Um, there, there is a, a fair number of pieces of equipment used in industry and commerce, et cetera, that, uh, you know, transition to electric may or may not be uh, the environmentally smart thing to do um, for some special purpose equipment. Um, and people need to think through, you know, what kind of equipment are we going to use in emergency response and relief and storms and hurricanes and other things when infrastructure is under pressure. Um, so that all needs to be thought through carefully. Um, in terms of the mainline uh, uh, personal vehicles, household vehicles, et cetera, um, it certainly seems like a noble goal, but I very much agree with uh, Elaine that obviously it depends upon the, the full energy cycle associated with the vehicles from you know production, uh, propulsion, and and disposal at the end and what's the full uh, environmental consequence and, and weighing that all carefully um, in, in making those kinds of decisions in terms of what's, uh, uh, what's most appropriate. Helen, another, to oh, go ahead, Helen. To me, what the, the best thing that, that sort of has happened over, is, is basically over the last 10 years, we've probably had a, a, an order of magnitude improvement in batteries. And, and that is that is substantial because that's probably more improvement in batteries than we made in the previous 150 years of batteries or something like that. So, so if we can really improve the batteries and, and of course improve uh, what they're made of and, and where you source that and, and how heavy they are and all those, those kinds of things certainly helps that, that whole equation. The, the, the generation of the electricity is also my goodness, uh, uh, you look at the electric generation charts and you look at the electricity at the amount of loss that the, that's, that's, that's included, that's part of electricity, you know, and all the energy that's, that really comes out of whatever you create it from ends up 
participating in going in this heat and loss or whatever, you know, those are those are tough questions. And so it's it's not just an easy headline. Right. Well, a few other quick headlines to, to touch on, Alan. Aurora has completed the acquisition of Uber's uh, self-driving car unit, put out the press release this week. So that's done a done deal now. Yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm really, uh, really proud of it. I think that's really good that the, the two groups got together. And uh, I think that, uh, again, this is, this is really necessary. Uh, if, if we're going to get uh, to more than 1% of, of, the, of the person miles uh, being done through uh, ride hailing, uh, uh, we've got to find another way to to, to, to do the driver because because there aren't just not, not enough drivers and two they're too expensive if you, if you end up having it and you should pay them a living wage so that they can feed their family. An automated system does not have a family to feed. Oh, man, that is an enormous opportunity. And in fact, they, you know, all that, those systems uh, still behave by Moore's law. Moore's law for some reason hasn't ended. And that means, you know, the performance is going to go up in, in the future and the, and the cost is going to go down. I mean, those are enormous forces, you know, fundamental. And so, I don't know, that's kind of the way I look at that. And, and, I, and, and, and I'm really happy for, 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 that, for that coming together. There's going to be a strong competitor in the after. I don't say this often, Alan, but your volume's a little bit low. So if you see the volume. Yeah, okay. Yes, I'm, I'm thrilled by that. Well, Te- Tesla reported earnings this week, and Elon Musk again promised full self-driving by the, by the end of this year. And he, he's planning a subscription model for that as well. And he talked about the revenue potential for the Tesla robo-taxi business being immense. Hey, the only other thing Elon needs to do on that is say, if anything bad happens, it's on me. I'll take care of that. I've got your back. Okay. He hasn't said that yet. He said, you can have all this. You're responsible. That's the big question mark in this business model he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, you know, all these great things, fine. Okay. If anything should go south, Elon, you're not the, essentially the richest guy. You got my back. If you don't, please stop. And there's been a little bit of a, a war on words between uh, Elon and, and John Kraftchik at, at Waymo, back and forth online about uh, Kraftchik saying that Tesla really doesn't have true self-driving. And of course, it goes don't. back and forth. <laughs> they don't. They're not close. The manual says you got to sit there and pay attention. I'm gonna I'm gonna go buy one of their cars and send it out to Steve and go give Steve a ride someplace. <laughs> yeah, Steve, don't trust me. Okay, no, he I trust you on these more than Elon in terms of. (laughs) I'm not. I'm not that good. Sorry. I mean, I'm. I'm. I'm a charlatan here. Are you joking? I mean, it's not even. Come on, Elon. You're doing great stuff, but you don't have to stop. Let Let me push back a little bit on the cost issue as well. Um. 
when you say there's not a mouth to feed, there isn't a driver's mouth to feed. But at this point, um, all of the mobility services that we're looking at have a, a, a very non-trivial cost to administer and execute them. You're all of a sudden adding a significant capital cost uh, of vehicle ownership to, uh, to the operation. You've got the storage, cleaning, maintenance, scheduling, customer interaction, um, all of those costs. Uh, in, in the public transit industry, it's been a number of years since I looked at the data, but we, we typically had you know three or four person hours of labor for every hour that a vehicle was on the street, uh, handling maintenance and all of the other scheduling and supervising, et cetera. And, and I don't know what those numbers are going to ultimately be for these automated systems. Um, but until we've got enough experience with their reliability and incidents and customer interactions and payments, et cetera, um, storage charging, um, we really need to be careful about assuming what a cost structure is going to look like. I think we've got a lot of logistics and venture capital people uh, looking at these and thinking we're moving boxes around instead of people. Um, and that the reality of what it costs to, uh, to move people and have the services in place to deal with customers, um, it's not going to be cheap. Um, whether or not it's, you know, meaningfully different than personal vehicle ownership, um, uh, I, I'm not convinced. Might it be cheaper than taxi and Uber? Yeah, it might. Um, but I think the proof is in the pudding on these. We need to see what really happens. Um, what other regulatory oh, I, I and other agree. costs? I agree. I think there, there, that's why this, there's still going to be jobs here. This is not, you know, getting rid of jobs. The, the, the jobs are different. I, I'd like to argue that, that a lot of those things that actually, uh, you know, might be algorithmic in nature and, and, and algorithms can do much of it, but a lot of the cleaning, a lot of all those customer service, da, 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 all those things that are really, you know, point out, yes, those are expenses. Um, you know, whether or not we put it out there and we can then, to me, the, the key the key is, is being able to do ride share. If in fact, you know, we're going to continue to have an Uber Lyft in which there is no ride share and there is no ride share in an Uber Lyft, there, there just isn't. Um, uh, you know, if one person in there or a group, a group traveling together, essentially, I don't know, 99.9% not that bad, but you know, it's really bad. But if we can get to a point in which we have two or three people in there, which I, I, I you know, we've got to get to that. If we don't get to that, then, then the driverless model probably does, it doesn't, it doesn't come out, it doesn't. And, and us, us having a, we, we don't need, I don't, any of us who can drive and don't need a driverless model. And whether or not you then go through all the expense of, of creating a driverless thing for the relatively few people who can't drive, but then go by themselves, and now that thing's going to be expensive. And what, uh, you know, it, it doesn't look good as a, as a, as a business model. I think. Yeah, yep, I, I think it's going to be challenging. Yeah, it's 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 challenging. It's challenging. I mean, we we need sharing, and, and we need that. But I think if I think if if we can get get the sharing and, and we can provide mobility, especially to, I like to say, the people who can't afford it or, or the people, the folks that don't, can only afford one car. What, what, what are the other three people in the thing? The, the and, and even the sharing in, an, in a vehicle without a driver 
um, is a challenge. Um, challenge. You know, it's a behavioral challenge. And obviously, there's, there's gender sensitivity. And I'll, you know, tease folks about the, you know, the guy in the MAGA hat getting in the vehicle with the other passenger having a, a Black Lives Matter t-shirt and, you know, maybe this won't work in a shared vehicle. And uh, uh, so it, it, there are issues and, and, and it's not going to be simple to, uh, to fill up vehicles. We can, we can be smart enough to, you know, to avoid those things, whether we all can learn to behave and, and respect each other. I mean, it, you know. Maybe they make that part of the app. They partner with one of the dating services and find out what profile questions they need to, uh, to include to, to f- test compatibility of, uh, mm-hmm. of fellow riders. The, the other thing is, is we absolutely, absolutely. That, that is, I take that is a serious comment to me. I think, of course, we need to do that. Yeah, yeah. The, the other thing is anytime you do do that, you interject uncertainty, trip circuity, average, you know, increased travel time. Um, you know, the paratransit industry has a 10 to 15% no-show rate. You know, how do you treat that? You're sitting there waiting for somebody that's, you know, that, you know, forgot their portfolio on the kitchen table and didn't get to the vehicle when they should have, and you're sitting there waiting. Um, those are all kind of realities that, that, uh, uh, that are going to influence kind of this optimality that, that sometimes we see in our uh, logistics estimations. Yeah, well, no, I, I agree. I, and, 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 uh, but, you know, I, I think some of these are, child, uh, are, are, are solvable. And I think, look, uh, I think it also makes a better society if we have better respect for, for each of us, even if you are wearing, a, you know, I attack the capital t-shirt or whatever. I, I don't know. I mean, we've we got to stop fighting with each other. Anyway, I don't know. Whatever. Well, uh, a few, much, a few. I'm much. gonna jump in yeah. again. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but I, I don't think we should give up because of it. Okay, we shouldn't use that as an excuse. No, I mean, te- technology has been the savior for mobility. I mean, if we look at what's happened on safety and energy and everything else, it's the technology that's done it. It's not the uh, the planners and policymakers. Right. I, yeah, I, I agree. I agree. With them. Yeah. Well, finally, Alan, a, a few names from uh, China in the headlines here. Uh, Baidu has received a permit from the state of California to test self-driving cars without a driver behind the wheel. DD has raised $300 million for its self-driving unit. And Xpeng has started rolling out its new autonomous highway driving features to some customers, ramping things up and, and challenging Tesla. So... Well, my, you know, I'll take the easy one, DD, you know, realizing that they, uh, if, if they really want to scale, that, that they need to drive those again. I, you know, same as Uber and Lyft, I think, you know, I have to have chauffeur services out there for folks, uh, 1% of the of person hired. Okay. I, I think, I think you're limited. And I, I wanted to also comment. Uh, Steve uh, put out a, a, a pie chart uh, in, in a group that we have here exchanging information. I think it was you, Steve, that showed 1% of the vehicle miles, of the person miles in transit. Did I, did I read that 
you you read that correctly. Um, correctly. You you did. Um, if we looked at trips, it would be a bigger slice of the pie. Um, but transit trips are inherently short. Um, and if you look at in passenger miles, uh, uh, it's a very small number. It's a inner city and and urban transit combined um, are about a percent of total person miles of travel. Yeah, it's a very small share. It's a very, it's a, it's a very niche business. I, yes. To me, I, I think that the opportunity with driverless is you can take that niche business and you can, you can and okay, and if you can, and that, that, and that, that's what drives me nuts about the transit uh, industry. They have yet to, at least in any way begun, begun to even think about this thing as an opportunity for them to 10x. And, you know, they're just, unfortunately, I guess, comfortable in their one, one percent. I don't want to say that because me in trouble all the time. But, uh, <laughs> um, it's, it's really a shame because this is, the to me, that's what driverless is. It is transit. It's providing mobility, a Uber Lyft should be counted in transit. They provide mobility, okay? What, what does New Jersey Transit do? It provides mobility, okay? What does United Airlines do? It provides mobility. Uh, just because one gets, gets their money from, from the public and the other one gets the money out of my pocket, you know, um, why is that such a big deal, you know? No, never mind. <laughs> well, all of this is a part, Alan, of the uh, fourth annual Princeton Smart Driving Car Summit, which is well underway now. Great session again this week. It's uh, taking place every Thursday at noon live. Uh, Steve jumped in with us this week. It was it was terrific. terrific. Great session there. And uh, people can find more information to register, maybe even to sponsor at smartdrivingcar.com. Really, really a terrific start we're off to with that, Alan. Yeah, uh, we had a great time yesterday. It was, it was very, I, I thought it was fantastic. And it's been really good. And um, hope people join in and, and whatever. And, and Steve, uh, thank you so very much for being with us. I sure, I enjoyed I it immensely, you. and we just scratched the surface. Oh. Uh, the whole transit and automation discussion could take uh, a, a, a huge block of time alone, but uh, enjoyed the opportunity to share some thoughts and hear your perspectives. Thank you. Really, really appreciate it, Steve. Thank you also to our sponsor, the Smart ETFs, Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. The ticker symbol for the ETF is MOTO. And more information is available at MOTOETF.com. You can find us, once again, at SmartDrivingCar.com. Also on Anchor FM, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple, Google, Spreaker, SoundCloud, wherever you get podcasts. Amazon has us now and Amazon Music, too, or on Audible. Ask your smart speaker to play us. You can find my tech reports at Textination.com. I'm Fred Fishkin, along with Alan Kornhauser. Thank you for listening or watching and please continue to stay safe. And have a great weekend. <laughs>